for the politics of Nashville, to the history of the Upper Cumberland. This is the Backroads and Backstories podcast with Senator Paul Bailey. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm your host, Senator Paul Bailey. In today's episode, we have Dr. Manny Sethi, a trauma surgeon here in Nashville that works at Vanderbilt Medical Center. We're going to talk to him today about why he's running for the U.S. Senate and to give his take on the current events in Washington, D.C. But before we get started, I would like to invite Manny to tell us a little bit about himself and what it was like growing up in Tennessee. Welcome to the program, Dr. Sethi. Well, Senator Bailey, it's an honor to have you. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me on. And, uh, you know, before I, I go forward, I just want to say, you know, you get to know people in different walks of life in different ways and... Um, uh, one of the one of the substantial conversations I will always remember about you is uh, when the tornadoes hit uh, Cookville, and you uh, just were all in helping folks, and were so selfless, and uh, that is what I aspire to be as someone who uh, wants to pursue public service. So thank you for that. Well, thank you for those kind words, and as you know, as someone that uh, serves the public as well, that uh, when you are a public servant and you have a true uh, servant's heart, the main mission is always about the people and meeting their needs. And so, but again, uh, thank you for those uh, kind comments. And so, you know, tell me a little bit about your backstory. Uh, You know, I'd like to, I'd like to know about uh, where you grew up here in Tennessee and, and tell us a little bit about why you became a trauma surgeon. So uh, tell us a little bit about your family. Uh, you know, the thing of it is the podcast go all, can go anywhere because um, certainly everyone has access to it. But a lot of people in the Upper Cumberland area in the 15th Senate District that I represent listen to these podcasts. And this is an opportunity for you yeah. to get to really introduce yourself because we're in unprecedented times as far as campaigning right now. It's very tough. Obviously, we can't. Uh, have Reagan Day dinners and and you know it's hard to be at those Farm Bureau breakfast and and so we're having to uh, yeah. re redo our campaigns basically to reach people. So I felt like that this would be another way for you to reach the people of the Upper Cumberland and tell them about Manny Sethi. Sure. Well, thanks. You know, well, my story, Senator, all starts with my parents, as you know, for all of us. And my parents were. Um, Grew up in India in the 1940s, and they had nothing when they were little children. Their homes were burned to the ground by Muslim radicals, and uh, they both, by the grace of God, pulled themselves up by their own bootstraps to become doctors. Um, My mother would uh, uh, be a nanny, and she'd go to these villages in India without electricity, without running water, see patients. My father would sleep in the back of his car at night and uh, do odd jobs and see patients during the day. But they both get through medical school, they both uh, become physicians, and they look around and they realize that India is not going to be the place for their unborn kids. And uh, they're looking at uh, at what's happening with their nephews and nieces. And so they go to the U.S. Embassy, they stand in line and wait their turn, and it took uh, about seven years. And in the 1970s, they came to Cleveland, Ohio, and uh, that's where I was born, and retrained in the medical system uh, here in America. And then at the age of four years old, uh, I can still remember uh, remember it. I got on this semi-truck, and we rolled on down to Coffee County, Tennessee, Hillsborough, Tennessee. And for those of you who don't know, in the, uh, in the Upper Cumberland, uh, Coffee County, Hillsborough, Tennessee, it's mostly a farming town. Back then, 
there were absolutely no doctors there. And so my parents were among the first uh, physicians, and they were doctors to farmers. And, you know, Hillsborough, Tennessee, uh, people didn't have a lot, but they had, sure had each other. And they invested in me and my brother. Go ahead. You know, my question is, in like what year was that? Yeah. That was 1982. 1982. Yeah. So the early 80s. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so in, uh, in the early 80s, they, they were here and, you know, farming town and uh, folks really poured their love into me and my brother. And I uh, went to this school, which had uh, um, uh, was a really, really small school, Hillsborough Elementary School, and really went to the school with the kids of uh, all these farmers. And I just remember, you know, they really struggled, but you just, just never known it. And I'd make all these house calls with my dad. Yeah, we only had one ambulance in our town, so uh, we had this blue Delta 88 Oldsmobile. And uh, we'd make these house calls in the back roads. And I very specifically remember this one night. Uh, we picked up this farmer uh, in Altamont in Grundy County, and he was having uh, chest pain and shortness of breath, and I'm in the backseat of this car, and my dad's rushing to the hospital, this rural hospital he helped develop, and uh, my dad runs him inside and comes out, and he's comforting the family, and uh, I watch as his family tries to give my dad money, but he wouldn't take it. So he gets gets back in the car, I get in the front seat, and we're riding home, and I said, well, Dad, you know, why didn't you take this guy's money? Why don't you take this family's money? And he says to me, you know, son, it doesn't matter what's in your bank account, but what matters is the difference that you make. And uh, for, for me, as a, as a real important moment in my life and something I always remember, doesn't matter what's in your bank account, but what matters is the difference that you make. And that was Hillsboro, Tennessee. And, uh, and that's how I was raised. And uh, watching them uh, doctor uh, to people, mostly, again, farmers. And then when I was in my early 20s, I lost my dad to liver cancer. And so for me, uh, that was a real uh, seminal moment in my life. I struggled hard. I uh, just couldn't find my way. It was like being in quicksand. And uh, uh, But that's, that's when I found Christ. That's when I was saved. And uh, that's when I realized that like three generations of people in my family, I was going to become a doctor too. So I went off and uh, trained and became a trauma surgeon. And, um, you know, I became a trauma surgeon because, uh, so trauma surgery is not exactly the thing that people line up to do. And, uh, it's, it's sort of, it's sort of what a lot of people don't want to do. The, the lifestyle's hard, the risks are high, the financial reward is not as high, but I was always just drawn to the patients and I could not for the life of me understand why. And then over time, as I've practiced, it's come to me and I've realized it's because they, these folks, my patients, remind me of the people I grew up with, good, God-fearing people who just were in harm's way at the wrong place at the wrong time or in a car accident, and they need someone to help them. And, uh, and, and so I've just been very blessed and very fortunate to, uh, to, to be a part of a, a lot of people's lives in a time when they need someone. Well, that's great. I want to back up just a little bit. Sure. So you you went to Hillsboro yeah. Elementary School. Yeah. Then did you attend Coffee County High School? Well, I went to Hillsboro Elementary School, okay. and then I went to high school in Bellbuckle, Tennessee. Oh, Bellbuckle. Uh, okay. A Bible-based yes. school yes. called the Web School. Oh which, yeah, uh, I love Web School. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that's okay. where I spent awesome. spent seven years of my life in Bellbuckle. Now, if any anybody listening to this wants to go to the best restaurant in America, it's the Bellbuckle Cafe. Absolutely. And ask for the fried cornbread. It's really good. Well, it's amazing. So, well, I've just learned something. So uh, you attended uh, the web school and then yeah. 
I assume you went on to Vanderbilt from there. Well, or, from, so so just tell yeah, me a little sure. bit oh, about. Sure. From there, I went on to uh, uh, go to school at Brown University uh, up in the Northeast, and then uh, after that, uh, I really was trying to figure out what my way was in life and what I was going to do. So I did something called a Fulbright scholarship, where I went to North Africa and I helped uh, little kids with muscular dystrophy for a year. There was a specific type of neurological disease that affects muscle in kids, and no one could figure out what was going on. So I went uh, on a project with the U.S. government, and we uh, collected muscle samples and built the first DNA database for the entire country. Uh, of, of this of disease, Africa? yeah, oh, okay. for, wow. for North Africa, for Tunisia, and uh, and that was an amazing uh, experience for me, and it really showed the power uh, of American medicine and the power as a Christian that you could have in just helping others, and uh, and and for me that was a very formative time, and then came back home, went to Harvard Medical School. Oh, Harvard. Oh, okay. Uh, wow. And, uh, okay. Well, yeah. I, I, the Vanderbilt connection, obviously, yeah. is because you're a, a trauma surgeon there, but but just, yeah. uh, again, uh, these are things that I yeah. associate yeah. you with Vanderbilt, just thinking of, obviously, attending yeah. medical school there, and now uh, yeah. you're, you're enlightening me, and so yeah. I think the audience will definitely be interested in that. Yeah. Well, I did, so I, I went to, I was in, uh, so I went to Harvard for med school, stayed up there for my residency at Mass General Hospital, and uh, like Frist did, and then uh, came back and did my trauma fellowship at Vanderbilt. And trauma fellowship is uh, is just this crazy time in your life where for one year you essentially just live in the hospital. So it's a it's a year where you're um, you're you're pretty you're pretty much independent, but you're still learning a little bit and you work really hard. And Vanderbilt has probably one of the top five trauma programs in the country. Uh, I mean, it's just an incredible place. I mean, we're the third busiest level one center in America. So mm. you learn a lot. Right. And uh, so did my trauma fellowship and then been on staff for about 10 years now. Oh, wow. Wow. And so somewhere along the line, you got married. Yeah. So uh, I met my uh, wife, Maya, when I was 16 years old oh, at, a, wow. at, a, at a summer program. And uh She's my first and only girlfriend, and uh, then became my wife. And we have two kids, uh, a six-year-old and a four-year-old, and uh, uh, she's just such a blessing to me. She's just an amazing woman. Now, now she's an attorney? She's an attorney, and she uh, works for charter schools. And, oh, okay. Uh, you know, she used to do uh, health care work. And, uh, well, she started out as a, uh, a criminal defense attorney, then moved over into health care. And, you know, Senator, we... Uh, I make no secret about it because we talk about this a lot because it, it helps people, you know, and people don't talk about this enough. You know, we when we were trying to have kids, we just couldn't have kids. It was not happening. And so I remember we went to visit this uh, OBGYN doctor and he said, you know, I give y'all about an under 30 percent shot uh, mm -hmm. for this to happen. So you need to consider adoption and other things. And um, and I remember my, my wife, and only later on she told me, she, she prayed to the Lord, and she said, you know, if you give me a, a child, I promise I will devote my entire life and do whatever, you know, is in your name and you think I should do. And so she, once we had our first child, she fe really felt called to be in education and mm -hmm. gave it all up and uh, uh, joined uh, the charter school. Oh, wow. So you've, you've mentioned this several times, and so obviously uh, your Christian faith yeah. is very important to you. Yeah. And it's what shapes you. It's what's uh, made you into the person that you are today. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think that that's 
um, that's Tennessee, and that's yeah. who we are. Well, I think um, it's funny. My my pastor at my church, I go to McKendry Methodist Church downtown. He says, he what he always says about me. He goes, you know, you're you're the kind of guy who's uh, less uh, talk, more action, and. Uh, and, and I believe that. I believe as Christians, we're called to help each other. We're called to help others. You know, I love, I love the Gospel of Matthew, and specifically Matthew 9, which teaches, you know, the harvest is plenty, but the workers are few. And I just believe that uh, our faith uh, and, as Christians is to just reach out in times of need and help people. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and for me... There was always no greater calling to do that than as a doctor, mm-hmm. and uh, and that's how I've lived my faith. And through our uh, nonprofit, which I'm sure we'll talk about, Healthy Tennessee, right. I just feel that we have been able to help and make a difference in the lives of so many. And uh, and I believe that's what uh, Jesus calls us to do. Right, right. Well, you know, uh, Jesus was a healer, that's right, and man. obviously, uh, you in a profession of yeah. uh, being a physician, a doctor. Uh, you're in the business of uh, uh, helping heal. And so I think that's good. And you just mentioned something about your nonprofit, Healthy Tennessee, which I think is an extension of, of um, again, you trying to help um, individuals. So tell us a little bit about Healthy Tennessee. Yeah, so, uh, you know, about ten, nine, ten years ago, I was just getting very frustrated watching some of these things happen, when, especially on the 10-care side where we were investing so much money in treating disease but not promoting wellness. So we're spending $10 on the back end to treat diabetes, but we won't spend a dollar on the front end for education. So I just started talking to folks, and I you know, I felt like no one was really listening. And one day, I volunteered at one of those leadership – I think it was in, I think it was in uh, Wilson County. It was Leadership Wilson County at a health fair. And I went out there with, with my wife, Maya, and I'm seeing patients, and we were driving home – and she looks at me and she said, what if we did one of these in every county across Tennessee and, uh, and, and really focused on education? And out of that came Healthy Tennessee. Our first health fair was in Manchester, Tennessee, where I grew up in Coffee County. And uh, we started seeing patients focusing on getting on the front end of their health. You know, I, I conned all my, my trauma nurses and folks to come out there and volunteer. But pretty soon we were going places and we had about a hundred healthcare providers coming out of the woodwork to help people, just people helping people, communities helping communities. Uh, we then segued and we uh, turned it into more of a policy organization at the same time where we brought together uh, almost every community health organization in Tennessee under one roof, created the first of its kind statewide listserv so that everybody could communicate. We came up with shared goals. Then about two years ago, we did the same thing in the opioid space, and we brought together all of these opioid uh, uh, interests across the state under one roof at one time uh, to talk about this crisis. Uh, We've traveled the entire state doing it. We gave uh, Governor Lee a white paper. But at our core, we are a preventative health organization that focuses on the health of rural Tennesseans. But we've developed this policy arm. And what was incredible about it was President Trump heard about this, and he invited me to the White House. Oh, wow. Yeah, to talk about it. And uh, so I met with with him, and uh, he loved Healthy Tennessee. He really loved it. And what he loved most about it was that he asked me, I'll never forget, he said, how much do you think you're spending per patient? I said, less than $5. And he, he, he was just amazed by that. Right. And uh, he couldn't remember Manny, so he nicknamed me Tennessee. And uh, ultimately, <laughs> then he wanted me to speak at one of his presidential rallies, which I did. 
and uh, I'm just a big fan. Good, good. He's a really good man. And since you brought up President Trump, uh, don't you find him when you're one on one with him to be a very genuine and sincere oh, person? Oh yeah. Oh, and really funny too. He's just a really, and um, he really uh, he's smart like a fox. Mm-hmm. Like he knows a lot more than he lets on. And mm-hmm. uh, I noticed this. I remember because he started asking these questions about Kentucky Medicaid when I was with him. He was like, explain to me how Kentucky expanded their Medicaid program, and yet Tennessee didn't, and your outcomes are about the same, if not better. And uh, and which revealed to me that he, you know, he he knows a lot more about what's going on than he kind of wants to let let on. So yeah, I, I usually find that to be true. Uh, you know, just this past weekend, he did his uh, uh, town hall with uh, Fox News, and and. It's just really amazing to see him interact with um, uh, those reporters as well as the those individuals that were able to um, uh, call in to the tele- yeah. town hall. And especially one in particular question was about, you know, why is he so um, abrasive a lot of times, I guess is the word that I would choose, uh, towards the media. And, and his response is because they're just constantly out to get him and uh, he, he can't catch a break anywhere. And so uh, he just and but I have I have had the opportunity to uh, to meet him a couple of times in Tennessee and especially uh, during the uh, when when he visited Cookville. Yeah. Uh, right after the tornadoes. And he was just so genuine and yeah. sincere to those that were uh, truly hurting there in in the Cookville area. Uh, so, um, what inspired you to run for the U.S. Senate? You know, this is something um, I, I've really thought a lot about. And as I mentioned to you, you know, my parents came to this country in search of the American dream for their kids and for their unborn kids. And they left everything they knew behind. And, uh, you know, uh, my dad would never see his dad again the, the night after he left. Uh, my mom left her entire family, and if when you meet her, she's so shy. I cannot even imagine uh, doing what she did. So they came here, took that risk, and because of that, I got to live the American dream in Tennessee. I truly have. And in my own life, I look and I say, well, what have I done for society? For What have I done for, for Tennessee? And now, you know, I feel like I've made a difference through helping people as a doctor, through Healthy Tennessee, but with this open U.S. Senate seat, uh, Senator, I feel that it is a generational opportunity to make a difference, but a different kind of difference. And I just deeply in my heart feel it's an opportunity to ensure uh, that the American dream in Tennessee uh, stays alive for the next generation. And that's why I'm running. Well, it's certainly a huge challenge. Oh, yes. <laughs> running for the U.S. Senate and and having to... Um, Get your message out to yeah. uh, to all Tennesseans and and let them know your sincerity level and know that uh, you have a heart for the the people of Tennessee and that you truly want to uh, to help them. So let's uh, pivot just a little bit and talk about Washington today. Sure. And obviously, our country has been forced into a nationwide shutdown because of the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, and it's caused several things. And, and first and foremost, uh, our federal government, our Congress, our president has basically 
spent trillions of dollars now in stimulus packages to help uh, all Americans. But my first question to you is, is, you know, with your experience in the medical field, how do you think the administration has handled the COVID-19 pandemic? Well, I think the president uh, has done, I applaud him and what he's done. I mean, things are coming at him a mile a minute. And he's making the best decisions he can make. And, you know, as a trauma surgeon, this is something I, I frequently have to do. You, you show up, no case is the same. You're making decisions on the fly. You have no idea what's going to come next. All you can do is make the best decision you can in the moment. And so, and that's what he's been doing. And so I think he's done a great job. Um, but what I do believe is that uh, we have been on, uh, and like the president's been saying, you know, we are, have been on the defense with this coronavirus and that we've uh, created a what I call a horizontal containment strategy where we shut everything down because to protect uh, those who are at risk. But the issue is, and what our campaign has called for, uh, we put out a white paper about a month ago, is something called a vertical containment strategy. And that is, let's protect those people who are at risk those people who uh, could get really sick with this virus and then open up the rest of the economy. And in fact, just I believe yesterday, there was a paper that was written uh, out of MIT, a bunch of MIT economists who said exactly what we're saying, what, what our campaign said four weeks ago, is that by pr- just opening up the economy and doing a vertical containment strategy, you the mortality rate would be less than 2%. But our economic gains would be so much higher. And so we have to open up Tennessee and America. Oh, I totally agree. I totally agree. We have seen our nation's greatest economy within about a six-week period just totally come to a screeching halt. And so we have to get America moving again and and get it back up. And I think you're exactly right. I think those that are most vulnerable uh, to the COVID virus, uh, every precaution needs to be taken to ensure that those uh, individuals are not infected with the virus. But at the same time, we have to get uh, get the nation moving again, and, and especially Tennessee. You know, one thing that when I speak to constituents, and this is based on several of my medical friends yeah. and, and discussions with them, it's like a 98 to 99% recovery rate if you're a healthy individual and you actually are infected by the COVID virus. So uh, it's just that small percentage of, of individuals that have underlying health issues or they're at an age that uh, it's just going to be very hard on them. So well, can, I, can, I, sure. can I just yeah. add to that and say Absolutely. one thing? I mean, think about this for a minute. Um, so we have definitely saved lives with our strategy, no doubt. Our, this horizontal containment, shutting everything down, keeping people at home. Absolutely. But think about on the back end of this. What about all the patient when they shut down the hospitals and people didn't get their colonoscopy or they didn't get their mammogram? And a year from now, they're going to find out that they had colon cancer, breast cancer that could have been stopped. Or what about the people who lost their jobs and uh, turned to opioid addiction? Or what about the people who lost their jobs and tried to commit suicide? You know, suicide hotlines are up 1,000 times in terms of the volume of their phone calls. So I believe that uh, you, you know, everything is a risk-benefit analysis, uh, but doing what we did also led to losing lives. And so it's a, 
it's it's a very tricky decision. Absolutely. And I think you bring up a very good point that there's going to be other consequences to the health of Americans and Tennesseans, not just because of the COVID virus, but because of us uh, closing down hospitals to elective surgeries um, and and tests that you re- uh, referred to as far as colonoscopies, uh, mammograms, and, and other tests that uh, individuals. Now, some uh, may have lost their job, which could ultimately mean they've lost their insurance, and so they may not have the money uh, to come and have those tests uh, performed. So there, um, there's other underlying health consequences to the fact. So what advice would you have uh, for Tennesseans um, that are worried about this pandemic? Well, I'd say, first of all, if you're healthy, um, you know, as you just said earlier, Senator, the likelihood of you getting very sick from this is very low, but the higher likelihood is that you give it to people if you had it without knowing it. And I think the best thing you can do is to wash your hands a lot. You know, lots of people are asking me these questions about masks. Well, what what do you think about masks? And I would tell you, if you're, you know, look, if you're in a grocery store and it's crowded, I don't know, if you got one in your wallet or your your, your pocket or your purse, pull it out and use it. I mean, I don't think you really need it in rural areas where the numbers are low, uh, I would say um, just do everything you can to stay healthy right now. You you know take vitamin C, get 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 a lot of sleep. Those things are really good for Im- your immune system. Um, but as best you can, uh, I think you need to carry forward with your life. Now, if you do have elderly parents, grandparents, try to keep them away from grocery stores. Try to help them out a little bit. Make sure they're getting what they're what they need. You know, if you can. Call, just call someone that you know is living by themselves. Just check in on them. You know, that one phone call, even 10 minutes of engagement with somebody, it just can really change their entire day uh, and their, it improves their health. And so th- there are just a lot of things that we could all do as citizens of Tennessee. I mean, look, I'm just telling you right now, the thing I learned from Healthy Tennessee is we are different in this state than other places. This is truly the volunteer state and people care about people. And I have seen this you know, Saturday after Saturday after Saturday, running around the state having health fairs. Exactly. And, and you know, <laughs> so funny living in a rural area. If you've driven by Lowe's, Home Depot, <laughs> Kroger, Walmart, any of those uh, big box stores, I mean, the parking lots are packed. The stores are packed. Uh, my comment has been that People are elbow to elbow in those places. That should have been the petri dish for yeah. the the virus. And uh, obviously, we haven't seen a huge outbreak in our rural areas, especially even though there's lots and lots of people that are uh, that are going to these stores, especially on the weekends. One of the big box store uh, managers in my district told me that their largest um, sales day had been Black Friday until. Just a couple of weeks ago, uh, right after the shutdown took place in the first real pretty Saturday, they were up $100,000 over their largest day ever. 
and, and they just were running out of product because people were coming in to uh, do all those little uh, at-home projects yeah. that people were confined to do. But let me ask you a question now. You're a trauma surgeon at uh, Vanderbilt, mm-hmm. and what role have you played here recently as far as the COVID? Have you been on the front line treating patients that have come in to uh, Vanderbilt, and can you just you know sure. elaborate just a little bit about what role you've yeah. played just recently um, at Vanderbilt? And because I know that that you have um, uh, you've have had to extend the amount of time that you spend uh, at the hospital. So tell yeah, us a little sure. bit about that. Well, <clears throat> you know, we went from doing five to six events every day across Tennessee to suddenly I was called and you know just asked, can you can you come back to the hospital because what was happening was a lot of these hospitals were closing down because they didn't have the PPE, the gowns, the gloves, the masks, uh, because, you know, a lot of the stuff's made in China. Well, maybe we can cross back over to that in a little bit. But so all this, all this, these patients started coming to, to Vanderbilt and the, the trauma volume picked up. Now, some of these patients had uh, the coronavirus and you got to take care of them. And I, I was in the coronavirus units and uh, that in the beginning, it's pretty anxiety provoking because... Yeah, look, I lost a friend of mine in New York. I uh, went to med school with him. He was a buddy of mine on the front. He was on the front lines of this. Another one of my buddies, uh, another doctor, was admitted here for five or six days, almost on a ventilator. And uh, so, you know, I had to have this talk with my wife about, look, here's the will. This is where this is. This is where that is. If something were to happen to me. And that was kind of almost surreal that we were having to have this conversation. And, uh, you know, you're in these tr- these units and Patients can't have their family around because no family can be around, so they're all alone. And the only interaction they can have is by FaceTiming with their relatives, if they can, or, or talking on the phone. And you've got to wear this, like, hazmat kind of gear to, like, see them. And so there's no real human con- – there's no contact. And uh, it's just so rough on the patients, you know. And uh, and you come out of these units, and then you got to – take off all this stuff and you're worried, am I going to pick it up? And so it was really anxiety provoking in the beginning. But over time, I think we've we've gotten into our stride with this thing. We're learning more about the disease, about how it presents. Uh, there's some, some more treatment therapies now. But I will tell you um, that it in me, it really reminded me of the incredible privilege it is to be a doctor and to help people in their hour of need. And uh, I almost think it was almost like a, uh, a, a reminiscent of a you know World War II call to service of if you have two arms, two legs, and a stethoscope, you know where you need to be right now. And uh, uh, it didn't come to that in Tennessee, uh, like it did in places uh, like in New York. But uh, uh, but it was uh, one of the most intense things I've ever gone through. But it also developed so much camaraderie amongst the uh, uh, amongst people at Vanderbilt. I've never gotten to know in over 10 years and now right. I've got to know them, you right. know, the, the, the patient transporter or nurses that I had never met or just, just people in the cafeteria, people, you know, we all just kind of came together as this big army mm-hmm. and, uh, that, that was very neat to, to be a part of. Yeah. You get to know people that you've seen their name for uh, 10 years, as yeah. you mentioned, but you didn't really know them. So now you've had an opportunity to, uh, to get to know them and and to uh, know that they have a desire to help people too. 
This is Backroads and Backstories. We're interviewing Dr. Manny Sethi, a candidate for the U.S. Senate. Uh, Manny, how do you think that this pandemic is going to uh, influence the future of our medical field? Oh, I think it's gonna it's going to vastly change uh, the way we think about medicine in America. Now, the first thing is, um, uh, as something I mentioned earlier, I think it shows our over-reliance on the communist Chinese government when the vast majority of our uh, personal protective gear, and I mean gowns, gloves, when 20 of our medications are made by, by, by China that we can't get it here. And you saw all these hospitals across Tennessee running out of supplies. And that's because, you know, corporate America, we sold out all this stuff uh, to you know, for for a few dollars right. in the in the '90s uh, and and you know last decade, and so I believe what you're going to see is uh, a lot of that supply chain come back to the United States, and I think that we have to make that a priority, and I think it will become a priority uh, because it's a national security issue. The second thing I think how it has changed American medicine is the very rapid evolution of telemedicine. Now, telemedicine has been around for a long time. I mean, I was using telemedicine. Uh, I've been using it for 10 years. I mean, I got patients in, you know, Gibson County or Giles County or, you know, wherever they're at, and they can't come in because they, frankly, don't have the money to get for the gas money. So I just FaceTime them. Mm-hmm. And I say, hey, how you doing? Can I see your wound? Right. And they show me their wound on FaceTime. And we actually wrote a paper about it a long time ago. Now, but the problem, though is that the federal government has made this so difficult because of their regulations. And within 10 minutes, you know, they just removed all those regulations, right. all that red tape, gone. Right. Right. And so now a doctor in Tennessee can talk to a patient in Alabama or a patient in, you know, Alabama can talk to a physician in Washington State. So we've we've rapidly created uh, the, the regulatory climate where telemedicine can grow. And we're learning so much about... Uh, how to do it. And so, uh, you know, 30% of my uh, clinic visits a week ago were telemedicine. Oh, wow. That would have been unheard of. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think those are the two uh, major ways. And then and the third, though, I think you're going to be able to see competing hospital systems come together uh, in very unique ways uh, in in times of national crisis, like these hospital systems in New York, they're all competitors. They all banded together. Same deal in Nashville. All these hospital systems came together. You know, across Tennessee, Ballot Hell, Vanderbilt, everybody. You know, got mm-hmm. together. The UT system, and uh, so I, I think there will be uh, a lot that we have learned. Let's. Uh, you touched on something, and and I want to bring up two points. Number one is uh, because of our of our relationship with with China and because so much of corporate America has sold out to China in regards to manufacturing products, but also our our national debt that we continue to uh, accumulate and especially during this pandemic, you know, it's. Uh, I, th- I think the last um, um, during our our last um, Great Recession that uh, it was like one point two or one point three trillion dollars that we added. But just 
basically in, in about six weeks, we have accumulated over $3 trillion in national debt. So you brought up national security in regards to medical supplies and, and, and other products uh, that's critical to the medical field. But this is also um, a national security issue for our entire country Absolutely, with the fact that China is actually buying most of our national debt. That's right. So, so tell me just a little bit about your thoughts uh, as a U.S. senator. Let, let's just transition sure. from uh, Manny Sethi, Dr. Manny Sethi, the trauma surgeon, to now uh, Manny Sethi, who has been elected as the U.S. senator. Tell me a little bit about your thoughts on our national debt and uh, our relationship with, with China and, and how you believe that that has uh, – become a national security issue. So let me talk about the debt first, and then we can talk about our foreign policy with China. So uh, you're exactly right. Now, I've seen uh, figures of almost $4.3 trillion, uh, which is where it's going to come to uh, over the next year. And uh, that's a huge problem. Uh, I mean, we're, we're going to be passing this debt on to our kids, our grandkids, our great-grandkids. And it's absolutely a national security uh, problem when you know, we've got this debt and one day, and who's buying it? China. And one day they're going to come calling. Now, I want to just tell you this story. So as you mentioned, I'm, I'm a doctor and I'm not an economist, but it just would have seemed to me that we're just throwing cash out of helicopters right now, hoping it, that it lands in the right place. So I talked to a, a nationally known economist last week. I got, a, I emailed, I said, Hey, I'd like to get an educational session with you. And we're talking, and I said, well, here's the thing. There's a, there's a drug. It's called genomycin. All right? You give genomycin in an IV, it's really bad for you because it goes all over the, the body, systemically is what we call it. But if you give it locally in a high dose, it's very effective. Okay? So locally you give it, great drug. You give it through the body, bad drug, can kill you. So I said to this guy, I said, okay, we're throwing this money out of helicopters here. How do we know? that these trillion-dollar stimulus packages are getting to the right place? How do we know that it's helping small businesses, like in Tennessee? Can, can, you, what, can you explain to me uh, the, the feedback mechanism? Because as a senator, I'd like to know. So he kind of explains to me about the, you know, the, Fed, the, the FDIC and the, and the Fed Reserve and all this stuff. And then I just keep coming back. I said, okay, I get all that. Can you tell me, how do you know that this money's getting in the right place. Like, what's the feedback? He's like, there is none. And that's our problem right there. That is our problem. We, instead of being strategic and surgical about this, are just tossing money out of helicopters, hoping that it's going to get to the right place. And meanwhile, we're just, we're, so who's gaining from this? Wall Street, big banks, big corporations. But when the small business guy in Crossville, it's not helping him. It, well, it might if you know the community banks are doing whatever they can do, and I applaud all of those community banks. But the bottom line is, is I believe that we're raising our deficit uh, uh, without getting this money strategically into the right hands. So the things that we have to do are, if we are going to do any more stimulus packages, it's got to be more surgical. We got to know that it's going to help people. We've got to cut our spending. Our discretionary spending continues to be out of control. I mean, we've got programs like in the Department of Education, they are spending millions and millions of dollars on things like cultural competency education for children. I don't, and I just, I, I don't understand that. 
We're spending million, we're spending billions of dollars on healthcare in our country trying to treat disease instead of promote wellness. And the example that I will point to you is our Medicaid systems across our country, which are broken. And I believe what we should do is we should give more responsibility, more authority back to the states. Let let states like Tennessee design what plans you want. I believe it will save money, it will cover so many more lives. Uh, and so I believe that's how we're going to be able to tackle uh, our, our debt in the future. But it's got to be, uh, we have to control our spending, but we are not going to be able to um, withstand these kinds of stimulus packages. And my feeling is, is that we have to be more targeted. But, and the second part of your question regarding China, uh, look, um, I mean, our interrelationship with a communist uh, entity is very concerning to me. Now, if I were to tell you, hey, uh, you know, Senator, our uh, entire um, uh, uh, oil um, uh, reserve is dependent on on a communist government, you'd probably say that's a real problem right there, Manny. And I'd say, yes, it is. Because, you know, just like the oil, our medications, our gowns, our gloves, uh, we're all, we're, we are way too dependent uh, on the Chinese for our supply chains. And that is because, again, years and years of corporate America and career politicians selling us down the road. And so we have to bring a lot of this back to the United States. We have to reduce our dependence both financially and industrially from the Chinese. And if I'm your next U.S. senator, we're going to be talking a lot about that. Very good. I know that those are certainly things that weigh heavy on my mind is the is, is our national debt that we continue to um, increase and especially just here in the past few weeks in which ultimately again rolls over to national security for our country. So tell me just a little bit about some of the other policies that are near and dear to Manny Sethi uh, and what you would really like to work on as a U.S. Senator. Sure. Thanks. I think there are three big issues uh, that I want to tackle as a as a U.S. senator. The first uh, is Obamacare. I think we the time has come where we really need to repeal and replace this. All these establishment Republicans have claimed that they'll do it. No one's gotten it done. I have a free market based based plan that focuses on pricing transparency, on an individual insurance market, on paying for prevention, uh, and we can finally do that. The second issue. Uh, and we don't talk about it enough, is this opioid crisis that is killing a generation of our youth across the state. Uh, I have been focused on this issue for the last two years, traveling the state, uh, talking to local mayors, local sheriffs, recovering addicts, faith-based recovery folks, drug uh, recovery courts. And the problem is, is the federal government has a one-size-fits-all solution to this plan, th- this problem. It's not going to get it done. We need to empower local mayors, local sheriffs, the people who know what's going on in their communities. That's the way we solve this problem. Uh, and, and I believe that, that we can do that with more local control because, you know, let's face it, these local mayors and sheriffs ha- have more knowledge about this issue in their pinky than federal legislators do in their entire body. And I recognize that. And finally uh, is immigration. Now, look, I'm the child of two immigrants. That's no secret. And uh, I was born here. But look, uh, my parents stood in line. They waited their turn, and that's the American way. And I'll just be very frank with you. And uh, if I'm in the U.S. Senate, we're going to get rid of this chain-based migration stuff. We're going to uh, end birthright citizenship for illegal immigrants. And 
I will push for a pause on all legal immigration until we get our unemployment rates down and get America back to work. There is no reason right now that we should have competition from foreign labor. Uh, There's just not. (laughs) Well, those are uh, three great policy issues that uh, definitely need to be tackled and and glad to hear that those are near and dear to uh, your heart. Uh, Just a quick observation. Just this past week, uh, San Diego, California, is now asking the federal government to come and make sure that the border is closed uh, to, to keep uh, Wow, times to, have changed. You know, exactly. You know, it was open border, open yeah. border, and now with this uh, pandemic, uh, they're asking the federal yeah. government to come and make sh- uh, to make sure that no one is crossing into uh, California now. So it's, it's funny how uh, just uh, one little virus can yeah. certainly change uh, course of a state. And so uh, it's that was very interesting. Uh, just before we close out, I guess my final question to you today, and thank you very much for being thank here and, and, and being being a part of our podcast. And I know the people of uh, the Upper Cumberland and, and Tennessee will find this very informative. But if there's one thing that you would like Tennesseans to know about Dr. Manny Sethi, what would it be? It's a great question. Uh, you know, Senator, I think it would be that um, my faith in Jesus Christ has driven my life to serve, whether that's as a doctor or through my nonprofit work. And if the people in the Upper Cumberland are looking for a conservative outsider, someone who uh, doesn't owe any anyone anything and wants to just help the people of Tennessee and make a difference and fight for you, uh, then I would encourage you to go to drmannyforsenate.com uh, to join us, to join our movement. And, you know, 40 years ago, uh, folks in places like Cumberland County gave these two immigrants from India a chance. You opened your doors and look what happened next. I became a doctor. My brother became a doctor. I've lived the American dream in Tennessee. And 40 years later, the child of those two immigrants, this kid from Coffee County, I'm asking you to take a chance on me and send me to the United States Senate and let's fight together. Uh, to solve some of the greatest issues of our time. Very good. Very good. And again, thank you for joining thank us. Thank you. This is Senator Paul Bailey with Backroads and Backstories, thanking our guest, Dr. Manny Sethi, for joining us today, candidate for the U.S. Senate. As of today, in the recording of this podcast, we have extended an invitation to Ambassador Bill Haggerty to also join us on Backroads and Backstories to meet the people of the Upper Cumberland and Tennessee as well. Thank you for joining. Thank you for listening to the Backroads and Backstories podcast with Senator Paul Bailey. You can keep up with the latest on the podcast at backroadsandbackstories.com and subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever fine podcasts are distributed. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Backroads and Backstories podcast.